Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you will, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. We are going to work through just a very small section of this letter, but I want to read all the verses because of their importance as one thought, kind of giant parenthesis that Paul places between chapter 12 and chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, and bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. And if there are tongues, they will cease And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith Hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So having laid out this general overview of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, Paul presses pause in verse 31, and he begins to exhort us to walk down the more excellent path of love. And this path of love stands uh, not in opposition to the use of our spiritual gifts. It's not like spiritual gifts are over here and love is over here. Uh, Rather, what we see is in these verses that the path of love is the manner in which we work out this gifting of this Holy Spirit for the building up of the body and ultimately for the glory of God. That's why we do what we do. And so we realize then by looking at chapter 13, and, and we'll see this hopefully in more detail as we work through it, that this is vital for you and I as Christians to be truly godly and fruitful disciples of Christ. We have to understand this. Paul's words here are poetic and exalted and powerful, we said. They're weighty. Uh, they, they hold so much sway on us just because of their rhetorical um, power. But the aim of this chapter is far more reaching than kind of warming up our hearts or making us feel, uh, a, a feel kind of stirring up our affections. The aim is to teach us to become a mature, spirit-filled people who glorify God in everything that we do. And the Corinthian church thought they were those kinds of people. They thought they were those kinds of mature, spirit-filled people because there was so much energy and attention placed on the miraculous gift of tongues. That was the the thing that they were most um, fixated on. But what they thought was actually an asset, we have learned going through chapter 12, and we'll see this much more detail in chapter 14, what they thought was an asset is actually a liability. What they believe was a genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and perhaps some of their 
some of it was, was really a carnal, selfish fixation on spiritual activity as an end in itself. Just the, the sheer action of it, the, the novelty of it, seemed to be what they were excited about and confident. And I think that just reading through these verses and studying through them, it's become clear that the Corinthian church is a good reminder that confidence is not a good, is, is no substitute for correctness. Okay, confidence is not a good substitute uh, for correctness. Lots of people are extremely confident in what they think about God, what they think about his word in life. But it doesn't necessarily make what they feel true just because they have very strong conviction about it. I think about Paul's words to the Jews of his Jewish brethren in uh, ethnic Jews, brethren in Romans 10 verse 2. He says, I testify about them. They have a zeal for God. Right, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, they had confidence, they had passion and zeal, but they lacked what? True knowledge, correctness. Or Apollos, to, you know, to use an example of a believer, in Acts chapter 18, Luke speaks of him as a man of eloquence. He says he was a man fervent in the spirit, speaking the, and teaching accurately the things concerning Christ. He was speaking boldly in the synagogue, Luke says, but when Priscilla and Aquila found him, they realized he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And so it says they took him aside and explained the word of God to him more accurately. In other words, Paulus was a man that had great confidence, but he lacked what? Correctness. His theology was not complete. And so all that to say, as we read this, as we read these, these chapters and study them, there's always more for you and for me to learn in the school of Christ. We have to understand that. And while we must have convictions and we do take our stand on God's word as truth, at the same time, we need to be humble enough to recognize that our individual understanding and application of that truth is always growing and in need of refinement. We have not arrived. We have not. Now, that was the issue in Corinth. They were enriched in Christ, he says in chapter 1, in all speech and all knowledge, not lacking in any spiritual gift, but there was something missing. And that one thing that was missing was love. They didn't have a love one for another. As we saw in chapter uh, 13 in verses 1 to 3, if we're missing the ingredient of love, it doesn't really matter whether we have the most spectacular gifts of speech or possess the sum total we saw of earthly and divine knowledge in verse 2, or we give our lives away in stunning sacrifices and acts of dedication in verse 3. Without love, he says, it, it all counts for nothing. It profits me nothing. And so we have to understand that love becomes the, that essential thing that we must possess if we are to do anything of consequence. Now, when we say love and we speak of love, as he does throughout this chapter, what do we mean? And it's good for us to review what we studied last Sunday. It's not just physical attraction or positive emotions or even a solidarity that we share with other people. That's not what, what the Bible means when it speaks of love. When we hear Paul speak of love or, or John or Peter or Jesus in the Gospels speak of love, we have to understand that that term is theologically invested with two important realities. First, we said that biblical love is otherworldly. It's not of this world. It's not natural. It's supernatural. 
It is, we said, the power of the age to come, breaking forth in the present. It is heaven's life manifest on earth. And we, we looked at a few passages, one being 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In other words, because God is, is in his essential essence, love, and the one who abides in him, that's united to him through faith, is abides in love, then God abides in him. So God's love manifests through the spirit-filled life, works itself out in us by a life shot through with love, which comes not from within us, but where? It comes from God. It comes from above. So we said it's like a visitor from another world. It is heaven's life manifest on earth. And secondly, Christian love, when we speak of love in the New Testament, and well, really in the scriptures, but especially clarified in the New Testament, it is above all an, an attitude that displays itself in choosing to place the benefit and welfare of others ahead of our own interests for God's glory. It is a, an attitude that displays itself in choosing to place the welfare of others first for God's glory. All those things are important. Biblical love is therefore, we said, inescapably Christ-centered. 1 John 4, again, in verse 9, By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so what John is saying here is the self-giving grace of God that sent his only begotten son into the world to, re- to make atonement for our sins and to rescue us from the wrath to come, that, we said, is the highest and greatest demonstration of love that the world will ever know, has ever known, will ever know. And the implication is the very next verse, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, so we ought to love one another. So John connects those two. God's love manifests in us through the cross and the hope of the gospel that is connected to our love one to another. So when Paul talks about love here in chapter 13, we have to hold in the back of our minds both of those theological realities, that love is heaven's life manifest on earth. It's not natural, and it's, it demonstrates itself in placing the welfare of others above your own interests for the glory of God. And of course, we see that most poignantly through the hope of the gospel. The love that Paul speaks of isn't possible unless we have been born again. You cannot have the love that Paul's speaking about here without a, a, a new heart because it is heavenly in origin. It comes from above and it is centered on Christ and the cross. Christian love will never be found unless the individual's heart has been prepared by the Spirit of God. It is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, we understand that. And the life of someone who abides in God's love is someone who has faith in Christ. And you can't have the fruit of love, uh, fruit of that without the root. You, you, you won't do that. It doesn't mean that unbelievers are, can't do things, of, you know, can't make sacrifices, can't do things with a noble uh, that are benefit others and that are righteous and good. But those things, like Paul says, count for nothing apart from love in Christ. And so that's why Paul concludes 
as he does at the end of chapter 16, or toward the end of chapter 16 in this letter, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Verse 14 of chapter 16. So it is the one necessary thing, and nothing, nothing can make up for its absence. And that's what we learned last Sunday. There is a necessity of biblical love to salt all that we say and do as Christians. Now, up to this point, we've seen what love is or kind of what goes on with love when it's absent. But what we get into in starting in verse 4 and following is Paul begins to unfold for us what love looks like when it's present, when, when it is manifest in the heart of a Christian. And there are, of course, a number of characteristics. We just read through them. Some are stated in the positive, you know, love is this and love is that. But some are stated negative. It's love is not this and it's not that. These are the things it doesn't do. Uh, but what we see as we read through these verses and, and just, as, we, as we will study them is that it paints this beautiful picture of what love looks like in the heart of a Christian who's mature and walking in the Spirit. I mean, this is ultimately what love should look like in our hearts and lives. And there are certain characteristics that stand out, certain fruits that are unmistakable. And what I want to take some time this morning to do is look at just the first. Now, in the beginning of verse 4, Paul says, love is patient. And I don't want you to be concerned. We're not going to take these one, one at a time over the next, you know, 14 weeks or whatever like that. We're, we will keep it moving. But I really wanted to zero in on this one because I think it is among the most impactful for us to wrap our minds and hearts around. Because as, as someone who is in ministry has the privilege of shepherding Christ's flock in his church, one of the issues that comes up over and over again on a pastoral level is the issue of broken relationships. I cannot t think of anyone who's been a part of the church for any length of time that hasn't shared in some way, shape, or form the details of a strained relationship in their lives, whether that's an extended family member, whether that's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether that's a coworker, a neighbor, another church member, whatever the case, all of us at some point have had or are having to navigate the troubled waters of broken relationships. And I almost always, almost always, those relationships become strained and difficult because of some wound or injury we've experienced from that person, whether that's true, real, or imagined. There's something that happens that breaks the relationship in some way. And if we're going to move toward other believers with an eye toward building them up, which is really the big picture of 12, 13, and 14, and if we're going to even move toward unbelievers with an eye toward sowing gospel seed, we need to understand what Paul says here at the beginning of verse 4, and that is that love is patient. Love is patient. Now, we're going to break this down into, by asking and answering two questions this morning. First, what's the root of patience? What's the root of patience? In other words, what's its nature? Why and how does love kind of guide us into patience? And secondly, what's the fruit of patience? So root and fruit. What does it look like when we are patient? What does it look like in the context of relationships? That's how I want to attack this this morning. So we begin, 
um, I guess our study, because we're not really looking at multiple sections of text, we look at verse 4 and the opening statement clause of verse 4, and we see what we ask the question, what's the root of patience? And uh, he says there, love is patient. Okay, we get that, we understand that. Literally, he says love is long-suffering. The term, original language, is macrothrumia. It has the idea of, I think the King James does a great job of translating this, love suffereth long. (laughs) That's the idea. That's the heart of this term. It captures the idea of patiently enduring wrongs done to us by others. And someone who's, it's someone who's, patient, someone who's patient is able, by God's grace, to steadfastly absorb the hurts and offenses others perpetrate against us, whatever those may be. Patience, of course, is, is, a, is a virtue commended by Paul throughout his writings as a fruit of the Spirit. Of course, we see that in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and it's all of them. It's love, joy, peace, and this term, patience, macrothumia. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, um, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So what, what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, long-suffering, showing tolerance for one another in love. Or later on in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 He says, as those who have been chosen by God, holy, beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So then patience, long-suffering, is this God-given ability to absorb the injuries and offenses of those around us, those things that people do to us and perpetrate against us. Good question to ask is, what are some of the ways that people might hurt us? How how might they offend us and test our patience? Let me just give you a cross-section of examples. Some might wound us by their thoughts and attitudes toward us. When we come to mind, they think poorly of us, and they assume the worst in our actions. They unjustly hold us in contempt in their minds. The things that we say or do... You know, no matter what that is, we never get out of that cell that they've placed us in. Some nurture an envious heart. They look at us and they see our, you know, our position in life, our gifts, our relationships, possessions, whatever those things, whatever they're envious of, they they feed that and they let that, um, you know, by that they injure us. They some might hurt us by their actual words. They gossip and say things about us behind our back. They slander us and speak poorly of us to others. They misrepresent, they might misrepresent our words or actions. They magnify our faults and, you know, ignore our virtues and judge us by judging us harshly. They speak, some people injure us and hurt us by speaking deceitfully about us. They might put words in our mouths that we never spoke. Uh, Sometimes people injure us by their, not just their thoughts and words, but by their actual deeds and actions. Someone in authority might lord it over us and take advantage of their position. Those who follow, you know, maybe in the workplace, maybe, maybe your manager isn't the one that's oppressing you, but maybe you refuse to show them the proper honor and respect they're owed on account of their position. Sometimes we do things 
Uh, we injure one another by being selfish, only caring about ourselves and insisting on our own way and, um, and how that affects others. Others walk around with a prideful spirit that looks down at everyone as inferior. Some may injure us by holding on to the past. They feed a grudge of past slights and wrongs and intentionally, intentionally return evil for evil. Or they deliberately withhold those things that they know would bless us and they press into those things they know upset us and discourage us. I mean, the list goes on and on. You can add a million things to it. There's a million ways that people can hurt, wound, and offend us and test our patience. The question then is, as we get to this, thinking about the root of patience, why and how does love, Christian love, incline us to be long-suffering with each other, bearing up under the countless ways that people hurt and injure us? Why and how does that happen? And I think I have, um, let's see here, five, five different kind of sub-points under this. First, I want to show you how love is these things, how it works itself out. First, our love for God inclines us to imitate him as our heavenly father. Our love for God inclines us to imitate him as our heavenly father. Listen to this description of God's character from Exodus 34 and verse 16. When Moses asked to see Lord's glory, he says, Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. That's that term, patient, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And Paul, in Romans chapter 2, asks of those who would test God's patience. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and long-suffering? Not recognizing, he said, that the kindness of God leads you and I to repentance. And we could look at a whole host of other references in the scripture, but God is, in his essential nature, patient. He is long-suffering. Think about the incalculable injuries that the world perpetrates against God every single second of every day. Just think about that. Think about all the evil that his perfect gaze takes, hold, takes in and takes hold of every single day and how utterly offensive that is to his absolute and perfect holiness. And then think about all the sin that you and I do and still commit, even though we have been born again, the things that we wrestle with in thought and deed as we kind of uh, struggle with the remaining vestiges of sin, okay? And then ponder about how God continues to hold all things together by the word of his power. Think about how he showers the world with mercy and causes, as, as, uh, as Jesus says, he causes the sun to rise on both the evil and the good. And that he sends rain on the just and the unjust and as Paul says in Acts, uh, gives them fruitful seasons and joyful experiences, how he allows even the most rebellious sinners to enjoy all the good things of life, food and drink, the joys of marriage, family, friendships, material stability, wicked people, even prosper, right? The psalmist writes about that. God's patience, when you take a step back, is just staggering. It is unbelievable. 
unbelievably staggering. And in the same way the love of a little child inclines them to follow in their father's footsteps, so we, our beloved, as beloved children of our Heavenly Father, are inclined to imitate him by being long-suffering toward one another. So the first re, you know, explanation, why, why and how does love incline us to patience, is because of who our Father is, our Heavenly Father is. Secondly, our love for God makes us humble. Our love for God makes us humble. When we love God the way we ought, that exalts Christ, God in Christ. And it puts us in the proper place so we see ourselves in a true light. We're nothing before a holy God. We are, when we remember who we are, in the true light of Scripture, we, we have to say we are nothing but unworthy slaves. And when that's the case, we will be far, far less sensitive to rise up and respond when others hurt us. Because what are we but dust and ashes? But when pride and self-righteousness have free reign in our hearts, it cannot help but hold on to every offense. It cannot help but respond in kind to every slight. And so the love of God makes us humble and makes us long-suffering. Third, our love for God acknowledges the providence of God in all the ways others may hurt us. Our love for God acknowledges the providence of God in all the ways others may hurt us. We recognize that God is directing all things that are happening in the world after the counsel of his will. We understand that. That's all over the scriptures. And while God is not the author of sin in any way, every hurt, every injury, every offense, every injustice perpetrated against us is allowed by his wise and sovereign hand. We have to acknowledge that. And when we realize this, we are far more capable of bearing those things up and submitting to them quietly because we understand that while man may intend those things for evil, God is causing them, along with everything else he's doing, to work together for our good. It's Romans 8 and verse 28. So the providence of God allows us to accept those things patiently. Fourth, our love for God sets our minds on heavenly things, putting the injuries of others out of reach. Our love for God sets our mind on heavenly things, putting the injuries and hurts of others out of reach. When the things of Christ fill up your mind and your heart, when eternal things captivate your soul, another person's injury or hurt against us is put into a right perspective. I mean, even the most significant offenses that a man may do to another man become just momentary light afflictions that will eventually and soon give way, as Paul says, to an eternal weight of glory. So what, but when our love grows cold, we become uh, nearsighted. Right? You know, to be nearsighted means you can only see things up close. Things far away are not clear. We have perfect, when, we are, when our love grows cold, we become nearsighted. We have this perfect vision of everything that's happening to us and everything that everyone's doing to us and around us, and we fixate on that, and things on the horizon of eternity are just a blur. 
But love, biblical love, is like a pair of corrective lenses. It reverses that nearsightedness, so it allows us to see things far away, things of eternity clearly. And by implication, then things up close are blurry. <laughs> For those of you, uh, bifocals, no bifocals. Fifth, our love for God makes us far more willing to put to death resentment or revenge. Our love for others makes us far more willing to put to death resentment or revenge. Common sense alone and scripture affirm that we're just more likely to look past the failures and faults of those whom we look up to, those, those whom we cherish, those whom we admire, but those that we hardly know are indifferent to, it's harder to do that. And if you're a parent, you know you'll put up with a lot more nonsense from your own kids than the neighbor's kids, right? If we're walking in love toward one another, though, in the church, in the world, it keeps us in the proper frame of mind to endure the wounds and offenses of others without becoming resentful or seeking to get revenge. So, we've considered the root of long-suffering, the nature of it, why and how love inclines us to long-suffering. That's the root of it. But the second point in our outline is the, what's the fruit of patience? What does it look like in the context of relationships? And I have several sub-points here as well. First, Love that's long-suffering first refuses to retaliate in word, in deed, or in the heart. Loving kindness that is long-suffering refuses to retaliate in word, in deed, or in heart. Now, I might be stating the obvious here, but when, lo when love is long-suffering and you're hurt by somebody or someone else's actions... Uh, the most obvious thing that being long-suffering means is that we don't become vengeful. We, we don't respond with hurtful deeds, spiteful words. We don't feed a resentful spirit in our hearts to gratify our flesh. Those are all just different ways of exacting revenge. When we're hurt, we... If we're loving others, we refuse to do or say anything to exact our pound of flesh or even our ounce of flesh. Instead, we absorb those things with a quiet heart and with an undisturbed countenance. It doesn't alter our behavior. The way they treat us doesn't alter our behavior toward them in any way. That's the idea. So we don't get chippy, we aren't confrontational, we don't gossip or slander them to others to bring them down. We simply entrust the situation to him who judges righteously. So we don't become vengeful. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. That's... That's the wisdom of Solomon. Or Romans 12, 17 to 19, Paul says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. So the most obvious thing is that when love is long-suffering, it refuses to retaliate in word or deed or even in the heart. Second, love that's long-suffering maintains a calm mind and heart. Love that's long-suffering maintains a calm mind and heart. We don't just refuse to retaliate with vengeful actions, vengeful words. We don't skewer them in our hearts, but we keep all the emotions in check that would disturb our love for those who offended us. When people hurt us, we keep our heart in, in check. We don't retaliate. We, re, we respond kindly and graciously And we maintain, by the grace of God, a sincere heart toward that person. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says says, um, in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We maintain that pure heart toward them. as As we interact with them. We might pity them because of their sin. And how that sin has offended God, but we cannot hate them in our hearts. Pity is an appropriate attitude to have because it doesn't destroy our peace or our composure. Some of us, and I would put myself in this sometimes, we're like the surface of the water. We're like the surface of the water. The slightest breeze or a leaf falling from a tree or a pebble dropping in, what? It reverberates out for hundreds of yards. That's how we are with others. But when love is long-suffering, we're like the solid ground. It takes a lot of force to cause the ground to shake and move, right? Those of you who've lived in areas like California that have earthquakes, it takes a continent's worth of energy to move the ground, as Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So love that's long-suffering maintains a calm mind and heart. Third, love that's long-suffering doesn't stoop down to vindicate and defend itself. Love that is long-suffering doesn't stoop down to vindicate and defend itself. When other people hurt us, when other people offend us, when we're long-suffering, we choose to keep the peace by not taking the opportunities that may be available to us to deliver ourselves from said injustice. We just don't take those opportunities. One, because our honor, our glory, our reputation don't matter. They're of zero consequence All that matters is God's honor and God's glory and God's reputation. So we have to recognize that our honor is not what is at stake. And two, because when we rise up, this is why we choose to keep the peace, because when we rise up to vindicate and defend ourselves, we are much more prone to hurt them in return and therefore to add our own sin to an already sinful situation. We are far more likely to respond in a way that dishonors the Lord in trying to defend ourselves and vindicate ourselves. And so all we're doing is just multiplying our sin. 
Paul, I think, embodies this principle of long-suffering when he calls out the Corinthians for dragging each other into court back in chapter 6. Do you remember that? He says, it's already a defeat for you, verse 7, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? I mean, that's a loaded rhetorical question. The point is, he says, that would be the preferable action. It, yeah, maybe this other brother has done something to you. Maybe they've, they, they've taken advantage of your situation. Maybe they've stolen something from you. He says, just let it go. Don't stoop down to vindicate yourself. Don't drag your case before unbelievers and, you know, and tear down the name of Christ in the public sphere. It is better, he says, to be defrauded. In our culture where microaggressions and perpetual victimhood and childish pettiness are the norm, and they are the norm, both outside the church and sadly even inside a lot of churches, the Christian spirit sails above the fray in the gentleness of wisdom and refuses to stoop down and respond to every injury done to us by others. I forget what the 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 uh, state the idiom is, or you know, if you uh, get down and wrestle with the pig, you'll just get covered in mud, something like that. That's essentially what this point is teaching. Fourth, love that's long suffering endures offenses both small and large, occasional and numerous. Love that is long suffering. Endures offenses both small and large, occasional and numerous. All of those categories. And this cannot be overstated or overlooked. But this term patience or long-suffering has baked into it that we would suffer long. (laughs) That's the point. That's the idea. That means we don't just bear up under small offenses, but we bear up under large offenses, serious offenses. That means we don't just bear up under the occasional injuries that people do to us, but the numerous and sustained hurts that others might do to us over and over and over again. And it's not that we bear up under offenses for a season and then it's like, okay, we're done. I'm not going to forgive anything else. No, we bear them up. The idea here is to the uttermost, to the end. That's why when, Jesus, when Peter said, how long shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he said, seven times? And Jesus says, no. But up to 70 times, seven times. The idea is that you, there's, and if he comes to you seven times a day, he says, and asks for forgiveness and says, I repent. He says, you forgive him seven times. Every time he comes. And we have to understand that The long-suffering requires suffering long. It requires suffering again and again and again. In the course of this world, we have to acknowledge the course of this world is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And the sons of disobedience that are among us, along with us, because we're we're not any really much better as, as sinners still in need of glorification, that that living in a world like that will make hurts and offenses and injuries abundant. And we should not pretend that that is some strange thing that has happened to us. How dare you sin against me? As if somehow this wasn't what would be happening all the time. 
We need to come to terms with the fact that we live in a depraved world filled with lots of depraved sinners, among us, and we are among them, and non-glorified saints, and there will be ample opportunity for us to be long-suffering. It's just inevitable. And so that's why Peter says to the churches of Galatia in 1 Peter 4, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And here's the reason, because love covers a multitude of sins. That's what this idea of long-suffering is. It can cover sins. And if we must, out of absolute necessity, defend ourselves or respond, there, there can be a time and a place to do that. Love that's long-suffering refuses to do that out of a spirit of vengeance. It turns its back on all harshness, all indecency and rudeness, all spite, and does everything in God's capacity not to add sin to the person who has injured us, not to hurt them in return. But even then, if you look across the totality of the New Testament, more often than not, more often than we're naturally comfortable with, we would probably do well to just not respond at all. So this is the fruit. This is, this is what the fruit of long-suffering looks like. And when we see it, it's not hard to understand why an unbeliever can't do that because there is no capacity to endure sin from others in that way in our natural flesh. So we've seen the root of love that's long-suffering, and we've seen the fruit of love, what it looks like in the context of relationship that's long-suffering. At this point, someone might object to what we've said and say, Jeff, you don't understand how this person or that person has hurt me. You don't understand how relentless their offenses against me have been. And to that objection, I would call you to hear the words of, of uh, Jonathan Edwards as he asked these penetrating questions at the end of his chapter in Charity and Its Fruits. They're so helpful. These questions he asked are so helpful for us to shut down our natural inclination to excuse ourselves from the divine standard of love. This is a long quote, but it's worth, it's worth hearing because his, his point is so, so well stated. He says, do you think the injuries you've received from your fellow man are more than you have offered to God? Has your enemy been more base, more unreasonable, more ungrateful than you have to the high and holy one? Have his offenses, this person who's sinned against you, been more heinous or aggravated or more in number than yours have been against your creator, benefactor, and redeemer? Have they been more provoking and exasperating than your own sinful conduct has been to him who is the author of all our mercies and to whom you are under highest obligation? Do you not hope that as God has up to the present, he will still bear with you in all this, and that despite it all, he will exercise toward you his infinite love and favor? Do you not hope that God will have mercy on you, and that Christ will embrace you in his dying love, though you have been an injurious enemy, and that through his grace, he will blot out your transgression, all your offenses against him, and make you eternally his child and an heir of the kingdom? 
And when you think of such long suffering on God's part, do you not approve of it and think well of it? And that it is not only worthy and excellent, but exceedingly glorious. Would you have liked God better if he had not borne with you, but had long since cut you off in his wrath? And if such a course, he says, be excellent and worthy to be approved in God, why is it not so in yourself? Why should you not imitate it? Is God too kind in forgiving injuries? Is it less heinous to offend the Lord of heaven and earth than for a man to offend you? Is it well for you to be forgiven and that you should pray to God for pardon and yet that you should not extend it to your fellow man that have injured you? He ends, he says, these questions may sufficiently answer your objection. <laughs> I mean, God be merciful to me. In every and all objections to walking in love that's long-suffering, I would say the writer of Hebrews would say, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, what? He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and it says, consider him. Think upon him who has endured such hostility by sinners and against himself, so that you will not grow weary. That's the answer. That is where we find the power to be long-suffering. We look at God, and we look at Christ, and we see what he has endured for us, and how he treats us, and therefore we are able, we are able to be long-suffering toward others. He says, if you, First Peter, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, if you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. He says, for you've been called for this purpose, purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. What? Leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And in case we forgot, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. That is the power of long-suffering, love that is long-suffering. It is a recognition of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ and what he has endured, and how he relates to us. And then, and only then, are we able to be long-suffering toward others. This is the key to living life amongst other people, is long-suffering, love that is long-suffering. And alongside it, which we'll see next Sunday in many as we pull together another big section of this, we'll see that love is kind. And that's how we respond back to people, doing good freely of our own accord for their benefit and all the other things that Paul unpacks. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We were reminded again and again of your patience, your long-suffering with us. We 
are humbled. We are brought low because we recognize that we hold others to a higher standard than we expect others to hold us to. They can't sin against us, but but we expect them to forgive us and to we can sin against them and that they should cover those things. Lord, by our standard of measure, you tell us it shall be measured unto us. So with that understanding, I pray that we would put on a heart of love, that we would walk in love, that we would be bearing with one another, forgiving each other, quick to overlook a transgression, not just small things, but large things, not just the occasional sin, but all sin, repeated, habitual sin. And Lord, if we do need to respond, if we do need to bring those things to the foreground and and to confront them, may we do so with a spirit of love that is also patient and kind and uh, not self-seeking and filled with with all the, the savor of Christ, gentle, meek, humble. This is something, Lord, we cannot do. We have not done. Lord, forgive us and give us the grace to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.